Would you like to find that reading that we had a little earlier from John's Gospel? Chapter 4, we've spent quite a long time in chapter 4. It's on page 1068. Well, spring is sprung and the grass is riz. And wherever you look, there are buds bursting with energy and life. Normally, I, um, uh, when, when preachers kind of get their pictures from spring and the, the birds and the bees, I want to throw up. But um, it is true that you, you can't really walk around very much at the moment without catching that sense of just bursting at life. And I wonder when you last felt that kind of ready-to-burst in your own heart, for sheer joy. Uh, just as an example, I mentioned two that happened for me this week. I was uh, coming home after a bike ride, uh, uh, Newmarket Road. I'd just come onto the Unthank Road. There was a flight of five swans uh, just flying low in formation uh, over, overhead, making that wonderful shushing noise that they do when, uh, when they're on the wing. And five of them together, and just the, the power, because you always look at a swan and think, that thing can't fly. It's like a jumbo jet, but it does. And then someone prayed at our uh, Ash Wednesday prayer meeting. And I just happened to know what had gone into that prayer, and it just made me tear up for sheer happiness. I wonder what those moments might be for you. Seriously, spend a moment just thinking what moments like that would be for you. Don't think to yourself, well, it's in church, so they've got to be holy ones. Another I could name, we recently went to a, a favourite bar and had a favourite beer and read a favourite book. Um, so they don't all have to be holy moments. That was pretty holy. It's been a week marked by loss as Nigel said at the beginning of our service. We've been reminded, uh, using those words of Job at the start of our service, that man born of woman has but a short time to live. But we don't do any favours to those who've had a short time to live if we forget joy. And whatever that moment was for you, just kind of hold it and park it for a little while, because we're going to need it a little later. And let's get to our text. And two rather odd verses at the beginning. Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and there he's met deep scepticism from the Jewish authorities. And uh, on his way home, he's come through Samaria, a territory and people hateful to Jews. And he's encountered faith from a rather dodgy woman, and then from her whole village. And now, having spent a couple of days there, he comes back to his home territory, and we're reminded in verse 44 of the basic principle that a prophet has no honour in his own territory. And he is back in his own territory because he was born in Nazareth, in Galilee, uh, up in the far north of Israel. 
There's no prophet honoured in his own territory, we're told. And yet in verse uh, 45, the Galileans welcomed him. What's going on? Something must be. It's worth noticing when there is this kind of oddity in Scripture, because it normally means that something is going on that matters. And it's going to become clear uh, that, in fact, this whole story is about the different reactions to Jesus. And so this oddity is going to matter very much. Why did they welcome him? According to verse 45, it was because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Jerusalem's in the south. Uh, a couple of days' walk away. Well, more than that. A few days' walk. We learn in chapter 2 that after throwing the money changers out of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus performed their miraculous signs. Those are what these Galileans have seen and heard about. And now he's come home. And the immediate story is told to us in the next couple of verses, 46 and 47. A man's uh, son, uh, he's a king's official, that doesn't matter at all, except he's, he's rich enough to have servants. But a man's son is sick back in Capernaum on the shores of Galilee. Uh, Cana, uh, which is where Jesus uh, is, where he's visiting, is in the hill country uh, around uh, a, a sort of the bowl of mountains, of hill country around Galilee, and Cana is up in the hills. But this man's, sick, this man's son is sick back in Capernaum on the shores of Galilee. Well, the healer is back. And so this man comes and begs him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And that's when we learn about what this welcome from the Galileans means. Their welcome is only because they're looking for more wonders. It still remains the case that the prophet isn't honoured in his own country. The welcome that they've extended to him is not in order to honour a prophet who speaks the word of God, not at all. It's really just because, hey, you did those things down in Jerusalem. Can you do those up here, please? That's the general tone of their approach. And Jesus rebukes them with this splendid phrase, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. We're told that the signs are given so that people believe. But it's still the case, and we know it from, from the actual way things worked out, that people can see, see the signs. Some believe, and lots don't. But this man cannot afford the luxury of worrying about being rebuked. He just says, repeats, Sir, come down before my child dies, verse 49. And it's far from the only time that Jesus gets this kind of test thrown at him. It's characteristic of him that he manages to do two things. He manages to maintain his rebuke of the people while offering what one particular person needs out of compassion. And it's interesting, he does not do what is asked of him. Because the man, remember, has said, Sir, come down. Come down from this hill country of Cana. Come back with me. It's about a ten-mile, quite a, uh, over roughish territory. Um, come down with me to Capernaum. And there, please heal my child. 
The people want to see a miracle. No doubt there were others in Capernaum too who wanted to see a miracle. And if Jesus had gone down to Capernaum and actually performed the miracle there, lots of people would have seen it. And that's therefore precisely what he won't do. It's this business of you people again. It's not that you people are seeing miracles and coming to faith. You're not. They're just enjoying the wonders. And indeed, the wonders seem to reinforce almost this sense, you're just never going to believe. So Jesus puts in front of this man his own test. He doesn't perform any miracle that can be seen by those who are welcoming him. He simply says, you may go. And then what he says in the original is more ambiguous than it is in the English. He says literally, uh, you may go, your son lives. Now, you can take the original in one of two ways. You'd better get that back there quickly. Because I know prophetically that he is still alive. And if you're going to have a chance of seeing him alive again, you better get there soon before he dies. Or it might mean, go. Your son lives and he will live. Now, and this is the point. According to the second part of verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. He didn't, as he could have done, he didn't say to Jesus, um, which of those things did you mean, please? Something about what Jesus said means he picked up some kind of clue about what was going on and he believed. As I said, it's about 10 miles from uh, Cana to Capernaum. It's hill country, it's roughish territory. We know from what's said in a moment that the man must have stayed overnight. Imagine what that night must have been like. I guess he then set off as early as he could. I wonder in those hours stuck in Cana, I wonder how he went backward and forward in his own mind over that time. I wonder what he thought when he saw his servants coming, before he knew what they had to say, only that they were on the horizon and coming towards him. And they came with the message that the boy had been healed yesterday, as they said. And when he worked it out, he realized it was the time that matched with when Jesus had spoken. The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour, about uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. So he according to verse 53, and all his household believed. And I want us to look at the shape of it. We're told at the very end, this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. There were other signs. I mentioned them earlier. There were signs in Jerusalem. He'd thrown the money changers out of the temple, and he'd performed signs and wonders. But for John, what counts is these two. This is the second. The first one was the turning of water into wine, again in Cana. Why is it these two that count? Well, we can work out why. 
because the answer is in those odd verses at the start. In verse 44. You see, it's not just an interesting quirk that prophets receive no honor in their own country. What John is trying to tell us is that this is the whole shape of biblical history. And biblical history cannot come to its fulfillment in Jesus unless the shape is what it has always been. The normal shape throughout the Old Testament has been this. There's a problem. God sends his word via his prophets. The word of God is rejected by those who should receive it. And so the word of God uh, spreads beyond those boundaries to those who will listen. Think of the prophet Jeremiah in the time of Israel's exile in Babylon, uh, writing to those exiles and saying, yes, it has been a complete disaster that you have been captured and taken away to Babylon, but settle there. Have your families, plant your crops, pray for the government there. Whatever you do, don't get fixated on getting back home. Be a blessing to the Gentiles where you are. But his words are disregarded. What we are seeing in this story is the playing out of messages that John has given us as kind of bookends to this gospel. At the start in chapter 1, we read this. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And then in chapter 21, towards the end, we read this. These things are written that you may believe, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Galileans weren't, when they welcomed him, receiving him in any true sense. But the Samaritan woman and her village, hateful to the Jews, had discovered that believing they had life in his name. This miracle is a sign because it is part of the process whereby the hearts of the people who should receive him are shown to be hard. While the people who are outside, either ethnically or in virtue of their desperation, get to have life in his name. What matters in this story, then, is just as much the Galileans who only want to see signs and wonders as the man and his family who take Jesus at his word and believe. It's a story of rejection, just as much as it's a story of joyful acceptance. Because it's precisely that rejection that drives salvation out from the Jewish people until it reaches all who received him, who believed in his name, to whom he gave the right to become the children of God. This is the saviour of the world. And the way in which he becomes the saviour of the world is being rejected by those who should have received him. We would not be here tonight if his own people had not rejected him. I would not be able to stand here and ask each of you whether you have believed in his name and become a child of God if the Galileans had not rejected him. And that's why this is a second sign. That's what the story is pointing to. 
a rejection in which is hidden our salvation. And that is signed to us as this household believes. And I wonder what it was that they believed. It's hard to say. Hard to know what they'd heard in the report that would have come to them from Jerusalem. Think of the words of the father when the prodigal son comes back in Luke's gospel. This, my son, was lost and is found, was dead and is alive. I'm not sure it matters that they might or might not have said to themselves, this family, this household, because it included the servants, oh, well, this is the saviour of the world. I don't suppose they did say that. I suspect it was much simpler. They believed a kind of echo of that fundamental step of trust from the father of the household. He took Jesus at his word. How many people in the world can you do that with? I guess most of us have a close circle of friends that we feel, well, wouldn't matter what they said to us, we could take them at their word. There's very few we can do it with over something that's really important. And of course there's none that we can do it with over something completely impossible. Like the extraordinary notion that you or I could be a child of God. Mad. Except Jesus. I suspect it doesn't matter what title they might or might not have given him. What matters is he is the man who saved the boy. He's proved utterly worthy of a trust and a faith that no one else could earn. Which means, I think, that if we recognize it was a second sign in terms of recognizing that by virtue of rejection as well as acceptance, we are signaled something about who Jesus is. Nonetheless, how can this still be a sign for us? And now? Well, the vital background really we need to learn is that this man is the one rejected by his own and received by the outsider. And unless you come from a Jewish background, then tonight we are all outsiders. That uh, pattern that's that's, uh, experienced in in this section of John, in a way authenticates Jesus' claim to be in the line of the prophets. But it also, because it's extraordinary, makes clear he's unique among the prophets. It is, if you like, uh, fitting that he should be the saviour of the world because history in these stories is reaching its fulfilment, rejection and acceptance. That's amazing. But for many of us, perhaps probably most of us, that won't be enough. I'm still wanting to taste and savour what it is that this household, this family and the servants were doing when they believed. And the terrible events in Japan offer some kind of clue. A whole town of 20,000 is missing half its people. Buildings have collapsed and it's not known who's underneath. Things have 
been, dwellings have been washed away and no one knows who was in them at the time. How many people are waking up in Japan now or have passed another sleepless night in utter dread about someone who's unaccounted for? Imagine it's your brother or sister or parent or child. And many, of course, will never be reunited. But some will be. And imagine the joy of hearing a report of an injured person taken from that building where you know your loved one was. Of being told at second hand that it is indeed the one you care about. And then being on tenterhooks until you hear a voice on the phone and you know. Lost and found. Dead and alive. Whatever it was that that family believed precisely, that's the how of what it would have felt like. I wonder how it felt for them ten years in. I don't suppose they stayed on some high plane of having their minds and hearts and spirits just blown by the experience. But perhaps those servants were found simply persevering against all odds in insisting down at the marketplace that yes, this thing had indeed happened. And now you've probably worked out the connection, pull back off the shelf that moment I asked you to remember. Because I ask all this because I wonder how much my life will speak tomorrow of this heart-bursting joy of lost and found as I have been, of dead and alive as I have been. And it isn't that it doesn't happen anymore, this kind of thing. Only this morning someone came up to me who's new to this church and said, Alan, I just want to say thank you. I feel I've come alive again. And I wasn't prompting them. They didn't know that was the story. It's exactly what they said. Well, thank God, and long may it be so. But what of me and of you tomorrow? Whatever it means that he and all his household believed, it beggars belief that they just sat on it. It beggars belief that they didn't tell people. How could you not? So why don't I? Why don't you? Yet the story is as close to me. Have you realized this? The story is as close to you and me as it was to those servants. They were not there when Jesus spoke. They only knew that the boy recovered at a particular time. Now, unless you choose to say, and you're welcome to say it, of course, but unless you want to say that that record cannot be true, that it's a fabrication, if that record of what happened is true, then you are as close to that event as those servants were. They are not any closer. They heard a report that Jesus had said something that explained a recovery that was otherwise inexplicable. You have heard the report. There is the report. You are not further away than those servants are. 
I wonder what keeps us from that sense of being able to report the heart-bursting joy of yesterday. But even years in, it should still have, even when yesterday is long behind, there would still be that knowledge of the joy that bursts the heart that day. And so I want to end simply with a, a prayer, a wish, I suppose, that God might give me and you the grace to live in such a knowledge of the Savior of the world, such a knowledge that the Savior of the world has done this for me and for you, lost and found, dead and alive, that it should burst out of us in joyful witness, and that it should do so tomorrow. For we were lost and found. You and I were dead and alive. And we have taken Jesus at his word, if we have, because it may still be an open question for some of us. If it is an open question for you, then pray as you feel able and right. But let those of us for whom we think we know about this stuff bear witness to the others that this is a joy like nothing else. Let's pray. right, I'll wait for the creaking while the band gets to its place. Lord God, many of us have taken Jesus at his word. We have believed in his name and account ourselves because of that to be your children, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, but born of God. We ask that you would revive in us that the joy at the truth of what you've done. That we have been lost and found, that we have been dead and are alive. Revive that joy, we pray. Turn us from those who keep this deep joy deeply to ourselves so that we become those just just like the spring bursts out. It bursts out of us into the world. And for those of us for whom that's not yet true, perhaps because we've got questions that are not yet answered, perhaps because we haven't quite got the confidence to pray that prayer of trust and take Jesus at his word, we ask that that you would give all that is needed that we may know, that, that all of us may know the joy of that man and all his household at what Jesus has done for him. Amen.